Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be exploring ska and Jamaican music with my guest, Heather Augustine. I'd like to set a scene for you. It's 1981. I'm 11 years old and in sixth grade, standing in a concrete schoolyard in upper, upper Manhattan. It's my lunch hour, and I'm holding one of the original Sony Walkman, so it's big. It's not mine. It's my best friend Mansoor is a Russian immigrant who moved to New York a few years earlier. He lent it to me so I could listen to his new tape, Madness, One Step Beyond. I turned it on and everything tilts. There are three moments in my life I regularly describe as feeling the world shift on its axis. One is in grad school when I was introduced to the problem of the one and the many. Another is watching my daughter be born. But the first one is this. I can feel the chill autumn air right now and the weight in my hand. I can be consumed by the music. For the few of you who this means anything to, the only artistic rendering I've ever known that has come close to this moment is the penultimate scene in the movie SLC Punk. But if you've never heard of it, don't worry. It's not important. I'm not going to tell you that One Step Beyond is a work of genius or even my favorite song. What happened that day is that I adopted an identity. For the first time, I was given something to become. It's gone under various names, punk, rude boy, skinhead. We'll get into that later. What's relevant is that I was given a mirror to see myself through and access to a community I hadn't yet met. This Jewish preteen in Spanish Harlem was given a tape by his Russian friend containing a 1979 cover version of an English band of a largely unknown 1964 instrumental, and for the rest of his life, he would be irrevocably tied to the protest music of former slaves on the island of Jamaica. This music is ska, and in honor of our guest, I'll simply describe it as fast reggae, but that's just kind of a joke for her. You'll get to hear examples of the music during the show. For now, it's time to muse on a philosophical puzzle. Why is it that so many of us define ourselves through what we listen to? How is it that music speaks to us with an intimacy that no other art can manage? It isn't just me claiming this, by the way. It's the 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer who wrote that music stands apart from all other, completely and profoundly understood by our innermost being. Teenagers get this, especially those who struggle with friends or are expressing their emotions. Many become so identified with a subgenre that their dress, mannerisms, and vocabulary change seemingly overnight. To outsiders, they and their friends look the same, conforming in their nonconformity. But to the initiated, the subtle differences of shoelace, hair color, how they fold their pants cuffs, or the duct tape that they wear on their hoodie contains all the information they want you to know communicating to their tribe in advance the ground rules for how they want to be treated. For some of the really lucky ones, that connection never leaves and they may find themselves as I did in their 50s, holding on to the idea that this affinity makes them special, enjoying private new discoveries about a very old musical friend. Music gives listeners dignity, even when the song itself isn't particularly dignified. It's a vehicle for the least social emotions, and a means to put into words that which listeners cannot yet say. But there's something else, and this is why I have chosen today's guest in particular. 
some music carries the weight of history. Klezmer, Irish music, Gregorian chants. You can't understand them without attending to where they've been. And it's the same with ska. It has baggage. It's not always evident, mind you. Some ska is just bad. And some is made by people who listen to people who listen to other people who listen to other people who once heard the real deal. We're actually going to talk about this on the show. What happens to a music when it leaves its original context? Does it lose its authenticity? But even the songs with four degrees of separation still have little threads that can be pulled. If someone bothers to ask, hey, why does the guitar player strum up rather than down? Then an old world opens up again, and the suffering cries of the oppressed might once again be acknowledged. This is a philosophy show, so I'm not going to spin tracks or try to persuade you to like what I like. Instead, I'm going to pose a question. What's the relationship between the sounds we hear and the story we learn? Forget lyrics, title, and marketing. How does music keep and lose its meaning? Ska was built on the rhythms of the plantation. If it no longer communicates that, can we still call it ska? And now our guest, Heather Augustine, is an author, photographer, and a continuing lecturer at Purdue University Northwest. She's written seven books on Jamaican music, including Ska and Oral History, Ska, the Music of Liberation, and Women in Jamaican Music, which was just released this past May. Heather, thanks for joining us on Why. Jack, thank you for having me. That was quite an introduction, and uh, I, I think the themes that you're touching upon there are are really important and they lend themselves to any genre, but uh, I'm really excited to dig in. Well, as I told you when I first contacted you, this is uh, this will be broadcast in January. But this is my Hanukkah gift for me. This is this is this is this is you know this is the benefit of being the host of the show. I get to choose who I want, and so I've been I've been waiting for years to do this, and I'm so excited. And to our listeners, if you'd like to participate, sharing your favorite moments from the show, and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, you can do it. Our handle is at Y Radio Show, and you can always email us get at askyund.edu. Listen to all our previous episodes, including uh, other episodes on music at whyradioshow.org. All right, so, so I want to start, Heather, simply by asking, why do we talk about music in terms of genre? Um, why is it mm -hmm. important that we're talking about ska as opposed to just music? Right. Well, it's easy. It's easy. It makes it more accessible when, you know, we can put a name on something. It's just like naming anything else. It just kind of gives us a frame of reference. So for people who do know what Sky is, they can say, oh, yeah, that, and it's whatever they associate it with. But for others, uh, you know, who don't know what it is, it requires a little bit of explanation. But I think it's just for uh, accessibility, you know, to know what we're talking about. Of course, then when you go deeper, you know it's very slippery. That slipperiness, that that... Um, that sense that the genre has boundaries. I know that for people who follow ska, there is a always a debate. Is this song ska? Is this song um, dancehall? Is this song reggae? And people get really animated about that stuff. Is 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 that does, is that important or is that just inside baseball gatekeeping people <laughs> trying to find something to talk about? Yeah, it's definitely a little bit of inside baseball. And it's, it's you know, it's it, I think it's attached to what you talked about earlier about identity. And it really does kind of come down to that. And if somebody can say, you know, well, this isn't 
ska, this is, you know, reggae or something like that, they're kind of flexing a little bit to use a, a young person's term. They're kind of showing like, I have some knowledge about this. And so therefore I can, you know, show that this is part of my being and my identity. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think there is some, it is a little bit helpful to be able to make those distinctions. But I think when, you know, when you talk to one person, they're going to make different distinctions than another person. And that just comes from what they identify with, what they hear, what they associate it with. And um, it's because the music is deeply personal. All right. So, so I would suspect most of our listeners don't necessarily know what Sky is. If they've heard it, they couldn't identify it. And I want to play two different songs, something from the late 1960s, uh, which we'll talk specifically about uh, pretty soon, and then something from 2013. And I want you to um, tell us a little bit after each one what we're hearing. The first one is the archetypical 1960s ska song. It's by uh, Toots and the Maytals, and it's called 5446 Was My Number. Okay, so that's a song where someone is decrying the rumor that he has informed on a friend. Uh, and then we get something that sounds quite similar, but very, very modern from a band out of London. And it goes like this. Okay, so <laughs> how does someone who's new to the music come to this? And other than the pleasure of music, which itself is a whole different conversation, um, what would you as a ska scholar want <laughs> them to hear? Well, the first thing I would want them to hear is the beat. So I think that's what's kind of the common thread running through. I would argue... <laughs> That neither one of those songs is ska. I knew but... you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the common thread and what makes them connected to ska and why I'm believing that you played them is because of that rhythm. And that rhythm is um, on 
it's it's very different from the American rhythm and blues or that rock beat, which is very kind of like straight on heavy. Um, and it's the opposite, really. So it's it's stressing the offbeat. So it sounds, for lack of a better word, kind of syncopated, but it's not really syncopated. But it's it's that offbeat, and so it's the upstrum on the guitar, as you had mentioned during your introduction, and it's that I think what gives it the energy and makes it what people call, um, you know, upbeat, lively. Uh, energetic, and it is that rhythm, and that rhythm is is common in ska, in in rock steady, in reggae, in dub, in dance, in some dance hall. Uh, that was there was some dance hall in that. Um, there's some different rhythms, but that's the common thread, and that's all connected to Jamaica. And so in a second, I will ask you a song that I should play uh, that will contrast that to give that syncopation. And then I may make some sound effects on, on the radio to make fool myself <laughs> and, 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 and point it out. But this rhythm is the rhythm of protest and the rhythm of slaves and the rhythm of this history. Why? How does a rhythm be that as opposed to just something that people play and like? Talk a little bit about, if you will how you start your book on liberation and the way that rhythm was the voice of the slaves themselves. Right. People have talked about the rhythm of the slaves as the talking drum, um, because I guess I'll go even before that, but when, when the slaves came through the middle passage and they came on the ships, they had nothing but their music, their culture, their identity. And that was stripped away from them by the oppressor, um, by the kidnappers. And the only thing they could keep with them was their, their music, their culture, their identity. So the drums and the rhythms that they brought with them um, to various countries um, became part of a way for them to communicate with one another, quite literally, um, in in the hills of Jamaica, you know, uh, rhythms and the horn, the abang, a way to communicate with one another to um, rise up, to revolt. Um, the maroons in the the hills would communicate with one another that there would be a slave uprising. So, quite literally, it was a way to communicate. But also it was a way to communicate with one another in order to have that connection to their motherland. So the rhythms of, uh, you know, the, the countries that they had come from in Africa became part of the music in Jamaica. And so some of the groups of slaves uh, developed these rhythms like the Buru drummers. The Buru were a group of um, of slaves that had revolted and had uh, gone to live kind of in their own communities. And they drummed. They were drumming communities as a way to stay connected. Those rhythms became part of the Jamaican music when it started to be developed because it kind of all we could get into that, but there were a lot of uh, different forms of music that merged together. Uh, but but fa the foundation of it was really that African drum. So Jamaica becomes 
both a way station in the Atlantic slave trade and the center of uh, some plantation life. It becomes a colony uh, for, uh, from England. So even after the slave trade is over, the Jamaicans are under the foot of the English. Right. In the 1950s, uh, and then I guess in 1962, 61 or 62, Jamaica is liberated. Right, And 62. But in this process, they get, there's uh, American military bases in there, there's Calypso, there's an early form of Jamaican music called Mento. They right. start to get radio uh, transmissions from... Uh, American radio, so they hear R&B. You can hear a lot of Otis Redding in in the first song that I played. And they start to develop this musical culture, but then it becomes a vehicle for status, entertainment, um, combat for fun and and competition that a lot of people recognize from the uh, hip-hop culture. Why? What? What's going on there? What's going on in Kingston in particular that all this stuff combines to let us get this particular um, blend of, of of ska, which again I'll play an example of right after after this part of the conversation. Right. Well, the the part of it that's competitive really comes from um, fr- from Calypso and some of the. But even before that, some of the uh, the celebrations that were taking place in the Caribbean in general, and one of the forms of like a procession that would take place uh, in the Caribbean was um, it, it was it was called a can brule, and it was it, it means burning canes, and it's it's stick fights. So they were you know processions of people, and as part of it, they had um, kind of like the leaders of these two groups come together, and they had kind of like a mock stick fight um, to display their prowess. That tradition carries through um, and into the music um, because music is participation, celebration, procession. It's associated with festivals and and all this. Um, And so that boast, it becomes boasting essentially. Like I am the, you know, I am the, the best. I am the, the leader of this. I am the king. I am the, and, you know, it manifests in different ways. So we have a lot of, you know, beef songs, which is part of the hip hop culture. Now I'm not saying it comes directly from Jamaica, but it definitely comes from Jamaica. (laughs) Um, There's many ways it comes. It's not a linear path. It's a It's kind of like a melting pot. But um, but another way that it comes through, too, and this is directly tied to colonialism, is they take on the names of king, prince, sir, um, and these monikers are a way to boast too. So it's, it comes, it's from the stick fights. It's also from colonialism. Like I'm going to take back this, you know, identity and I'm the king now. Um, So they also would, I, like I said, beef songs, they would make beef songs off of one another. And you could go like five songs deep on some of these beef songs back, back and forth to one another. They would also do this, boasting and competition live at sound system dances where they would clash and try to play the best song to have the best crowd reaction. Um, they would try to have the best song recorded by the best artist and played at their sound system dance so that they could be crowned the king. 
and they literally would be carried into the dance on a throne with a crown and an ermine uh, cloak on. So it was really theater in a way. I, I, I want people to get the picture of this and then I'll ask you what you want me to play um, because the sound systems, these aren't nightclubs as we envision them. They're often empty lots. These folks are very, very poor. People didn't have radios. They didn't have stereos. So they were um, handmade, massively sized speakers uh, right. um, that people would dance to all night. But then also they'd attach these speakers um to cars that look like two, three stories high, cars, <laughs> right. trucks, and drive around battling with each other, calling attention to them to get the most people into the room or into the area to make the money and to, and, and to have the pride. What, what song right. can I play that will give us a sense, and what year is it from, of, of, of what this might sound like? <sighs> Well, I think I think School in the Duke is really a good one to play. And this song, um, School in the Duke is a beef song. And it was a song by uh, that was recorded by one of these sound system operators. Um, and his his name was Cox and Dodd. And he wanted to kind of like throw off the competition which was Duke Reed. And so schooling the Duke was, you know, his way of saying, you know, I'm going to teach you how it's done. And, um, and so this song would have been what they call a one-off or a special at the time. It was a recording made just for the sound system. Uh, it's by Don Drummond. Uh, Don Drummond was a master trombonist and he was uh, well-known at the time. He had spent about 10 years in the jazz industry. And I say industry because he was playing at, at clubs, and it really was a whole precursor to what we're talking about right now. But he was well-known, and so this song would have what they called flopped the competition, meaning gotten the biggest reaction at the sound system yard, and, uh, and it was a way of sticking it to the competition. So Heather, what did we just hear? Well, this is what somebody might call proto ska. So you can hear it doesn't have the this that beat that we talked about earlier. It really sounds a lot like jazz. Um, that's because it was. Uh, but this song would have been um, popular because jazz was popular all over the island. It was especially popular in dance clubs. Um, so uh, the jazz is part of it, and the horns, I think, is, is what you're really hearing. So Don Drummond with the trombone is soloing. That's a big deal because that really wasn't done a lot up until that point in Jamaica. 
uh, but he was really the star of the show. So you're hearing Don Drummond, who's a virtuoso. He was very prolific. He wrote a lot of music. Um, and so people would have come to the dance to hear this song because Don Drummond was a star. How much do the people know when they hear this music, right? I mean, um, most people, when they hear music, especially new music, they don't know anything. They just, they, they react emotionally. And if they go to the clubs to dance, they want, you know, what Aristotle called catharsis. They want to, they want to let that emotion release. The deeper you are in a music uh, genre, the more you understand. So when, when people danced, did they understand the weight of the history? Did they understand the beef? Did they have loyalties? Or was this just popular music and people treated it like popular music and they liked this song until they liked that song and then they went about their business? I don't really think it was that shallow, but it also wasn't that deep. So I don't think people realized, you know, oh, I'm shaking off the, you know, the chains of the oppressor. And it wasn't anything like that, of course. But m music was much more than just popular, you know, flavor of the day. It was participatory and it always had been. So, you know, even before ska, the music of the people quite literally was folk music. So it had come, you know, music was a way to gather, to celebrate, to get away from the work day, the oppression and, you know, do all those things that are connected to the homeland and things like that. But it was participatory always it was dancing and music were so intertwined um it was it was an act it was you know it was not a passive it wasn't you know you couldn't really i mean listening to it on your walkman is such an anathema to what was going on then because <laughs> it was um you know it was a an activity and so from that folk music um, came ska and it's definitely connected. So ska music wasn't listening to what was popular the day. It was being involved in the, the music itself. So they, like you said, you know, they didn't have stereos. They didn't have radios. I mean, maybe somebody, you know, in the yard would have a transistor radio so they could pick up the, the radio stations, but it wasn't standing around listening to it. Nobody had record players. That was for the wealthy. So music was, um, you know, it was part of the audience always. It was being played in a dance, played in a hall. Um, and so the music and the dance are inseparable. When we come back from the break, I want to talk more about this participatory aspect. I want to talk about the migration of ska outside of Jamaica and the subcultures and, and the political content. And I want to ask you about the debates over what ska really is. But before that, you're listening to Heather Augustine and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this.
the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions in Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I'm talking with Heather Augustine about ska and Jamaican music and the way that music and identity and the world people live in interact. And I, you know, I was, as I talked about in the beginning of the show, I was very active in the ska scene. When I was younger, I went to all the clubs that I was allowed into before I went away to college. I was a DJ in college. And then I go to grad school and then I go live in Europe for a while and I lose touch with some of the music. And I lose touch during the music in the 1990s when there is a massive boost of ska in popular music, uh, combines with punk rock in the Southern California area, in part because of stuff that happened in England that we'll talk about. And there are these bands that people talk about, one's named The Aquabats, one's named Real Big Fish, that I didn't hear until like five years ago. <laughs> and I find this stuff unrecognizable because I jumped the 90s and ended up listening to Ska again after I became a professor and lived in Grand Forks. And this was the 2000s in the last decade. And the genre becomes something else. And so Heather, I guess the first question I wanna ask is, when Ska leaves Jamaica, does something bad happen, right? It goes to England. It's uh, combined with punk rock music in a variety of ways. Bands become a mixture of white and black. There's this thing called the two-tone movement that talks about racial harmony and, and English politics. Then it comes to America, and particularly in the 90s, it becomes almost entirely white. Uh, most of the bands, the, in the 1980s, it's a little more complicated, but in the 1990s, they're mostly white. They're middle and upper middle class. It the bands don't necessarily take themselves seriously. There's a lot of joking. It becomes fodder for MTV and other things. Is this bad? And is this a violation? Is this cultural appropriation? What does something like this do to a music that has such deep roots? Well, I think you're you're really kind of hitting a nerve here because it, it is, um, this is the point of debate that that people have is that, you know, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's, you know, especially because, you know, it, it serves a, a similar purpose, but not in the same way. But I mean, for suburban youths, you know, it was uh, still participatory. It was an outlet for whatever they were experiencing, certainly not the same level of oppression or maybe not even oppression at all, but it was still serving a purpose. And that was to bring enjoyment, energy, a, you know, escape, um, expression, creativity, all of those things. Um, was it appropriation? Um, I, I think when it comes to appropriation, if there if it's done in a way that is disrespectful, then of, of course that is offensive and harmful. But this was not 
done that way if if you want my opinion i think this was maybe most of the kids who formed ska bands during this area because that's really what it was was a lot of high school jazz bands or marching bands that they say hey let's get together and make a ska band um there was probably no even uh, awareness of the jamaican ska in their world uh, they were just listening to what they had heard, which during your intro, you said was, you know, a band that was influenced by a band, by a band, by a band. So it had already been so diluted at that point that that's why it doesn't sound like the original. But for some, uh, it really, I think, uh, maybe led them down that rabbit hole of, hey, what is this music? Where did this come from? And then they do go trace those roots and maybe do find a deeper love and that I think has uh can can lead to some really deep and profound creativity even more because it's more informed it's it's richer it's more layered um and more respectful too so I I want to play again two songs I'll just play them short and back to back uh the first is a song called easy snapping which you and and other folks uh often identify as the first, the very first ska song. And then I was going to play a song by my one of my favorite current bands, the um, Interrupters. Uh, mm-hmm. Amy and the boys, if you're listening, call me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, uh, um, but I'll actually play a, a band by Real Fish, Real Big Fish, which I, I, I mentioned earlier uh, called Sellout. And mm-hmm. I, I want you to have this debate for us. Um, I want you to have the philosophical debate as to whether or not these are the same or different kinds of music and 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 why. So we'll we'll start here with easy snapping. And now let's hear Real Big Fish sell out. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. The record company's gonna give me lots of money and everything's gonna be. And I don't think it'll be so bad. And I know it won't be so bad. Okay, so they sound different. I mean, um, easy snapping. It's 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 almost the the Lawrence Welk of 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 ska, right? It's 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 very of the time. <laughs> it's 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 it's. I know that that if young Jamaicans heard us talking about ska now, they'd think that we were their grandparents, right? I mean, the, the, it's not exactly. hip in Jamaica anymore. No. Um, I'm not sure real big fish is particularly hip either. So, so there's that, but, but, <laughs> but is this the same type of music? And I guess, you know, have the philosophical conversation for us and then we'll step back and we'll have the philosophical conversation about the philosophical conversation. 
What's the debate as to whether this mm. is or isn't the same music? Well, the debate is, is that it is so far removed from the sound, uh, the quality of the instrumentalism, the, the musicianship. Um, it's silly instead of uh, rooted in something more serious or, you know, um, authentic, I guess, to use, you know, that word. It is, it's so far removed from that, that is it even part of that same animal anymore? Um, and so that's why we try to put different labels on these things. And some people have called it, you know, third wave ska. Um, the second wave being what you talked about earlier, the, the UK version, the two-tone version, the first wave, of course, being Jamaica. So we, it's so problematic that people try to put different genre, you know, subgenre names on it because, gosh, it doesn't sound the same at all. So how, how could it be the same thing? Um, but then again, there are similar elements like we talked about before, the rhythm that syncopated rhythm is still there. The horns are still there. These musicians are still probably trained in some jazz or marching band or something somewhat classical. Um, so they have those, that knowledge of those, you know, chord progressions and things like that. So there are similarities. So yeah, and it, it is, it does all lead back to Jamaica even if they weren't aware of it necessarily. So um, that's the debate. And I think what you'll find too is that for many fans, they like all versions of that ska. They like Real Big Fish and they like the Scatolites and Don Drummond. Uh, there's something appealing about it. And what is it? The energy and the spirit. It's uplifting. I, I, I want to... Um... I want to do something, and if 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 the radio station had a repeater, if I could if I could record over my voice in a cycle, it would be better. But I want to point out uh, to the listeners exactly what it means that this rhythm is uh, is the ska rhythm and identify. So so if I I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna reproduce a couple uh, two different sounds with my mouth and you have to imagine them playing at the same time the first thing is i'm going to reproduce what sometimes gets called the skank um which is the the upward um stroke of the guitar and it's schwank 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 and then if i was to do this thing that starts off called toasting um so if i go schwank 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 Schwank, schwank, shank, it's hard to do fast. Schwank, schwank, shank, shank. You know, anyone who knows the genre knows I'm doing a ska song, right? And that's a ska song with just a rhythmic element. That's what you're talking about, right? When we're talking about the legacy of the rhythm, it's that, right? That's right. And it's, it's. I mean, to put it like even, even a little bit more technical terms, it's the the upstroke is on the two and the four beats in the measure instead of the one and the three. So the one and the three would be more of the rock and roll. Um, and the, the two and the four would be the ska. So 
the stress is on those beats in the measure instead. I'm glad you brought that up because I want to play just a minute of a marvelous video that's on YouTube of Bob Marley explaining exactly this uh, as to what the difference between ska, reggae, and um, rock steady are. Hmm. Uh, for a while now, the music start just from the reggae. See, it used to be a, a music almost like a, like a half blues. When you used to play before, the sketch start, you know. Even people like Joe Higgs, cha na na cha na 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 cha na na cha na 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 You know that music? Right. used to play that plenty. From there now, it developed to people start, ching, 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 for ska, you know. And then for um, rock steady, like, ching, ching, ching. For reggae noise, check, 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 you know. So you have three different feel. He gives us three different rhythms there. Um, I know for a lot of people who aren't used to hearing uh, the Jamaican English, it might be a little hard to understand. What's he, what's he describing here? What's happening? And, and again, why is it important rhythmically? Because really what we have here are three separate, what we would call genres that are unique and in, in, in an invention of Jamaica. So... You know, I think it's important because it's definitely tied to Jamaican identity. But what's he talking about here um, is that that ska beat is the foundation of the rock steady and the reggae that comes after it. It's just that the rock steady, it's it's a different rhythm, yes, but it's a bit slower. Um, the horns are gone for the for the most part. Vocals come in. And it's more connected to the American rhythm and blues style of what was happening at that time. And then reggae is really a, a different beat altogether. Um, what we would call slower, which is what you alluded to in your intro when you called ska fast reggae. And uh, it is because reggae is reggae. The tempo of reggae could be faster, but there's something different about reggae and it's typically slower um, but what is different about reggae, it is that um, that rhythm, which is almost a a double rhythm, if you will. It's a you know, it's it's completely different, but it's all built upon that original um, ska rhythm of it being on the two and the four beat. OK, so so. Ska becomes huge in Jamaica for a fairly concentrated period of time, uh, mid fifties to early sixties or mid sixties, I guess, uh, uh, mm -hmm. before it branches out into these other things. Right. People develop clothing styles and attitudes initially called uh, rude boys. They dressed, right. uh, uh, they were modeled on gangsters. They dressed a certain way when the economy plummeted and especially for musicians and, uh, a lot of folks moved to England. They brought the records with them. They brought the clothing and the style with them. And this infected a, a small group of English teens who also identified themselves as rude boys. But something else goes on is that this a, a group of uh, working class young toughs uh, become enamored with this music. And we know them as skinheads. But this isn't, at this point, the violent, racist uh, skinheads. These are people 
who are very interested in Jamaican and African culture, right? What is it about the migration of ska that someone, you know, in the two-tone movement, Jerry Dammers and folks who were in the specials saw that was a unifying force as opposed to a, a dividing force? How is it that this music, before a lot of trouble started, how is it that in the 1960s it was a music for black and white audiences, not just black audiences? Well, I think part of it was is that they, the black and white communities were living in, in proximity to one another. I don't want to say together because it was fairly segregated, but, um, but they were living in the same proximity to one another. They were in similar conditions because unemployment was such a problem during um, you know, the Thatcher administration. And, um, so there was a similar kind of oppression going on, not the racism in the white community, of course, but, um, that's a whole separate issue, but they found themselves in similar situations in, in similar areas. And so they were hearing, uh, the, the white youth, they were hearing the music of the West Indian immigrants who had come there looking for work um, during, you know, the Reformation era and Reconstruction um, after World War II. Um, but there wasn't work. Uh, there wasn't, um, it, it was, there were terrible conditions. And so they were in this, a similar situation and singing about, the same things from two very different points of view. So like people that you mentioned, like Jerry Dammers, he's hearing these mus the music of the West Indians that they brought with them, the records. He's hearing this in his, in his neighborhood. He's hearing it in what they would call Shabines or, you know, um, house parties. And they loved the music. I don't know why? I don't know, you know, like, what is it about the white youth that they like what they hear? I don't, I don't know why they had an affinity for it. Uh, I guess that would just be like a matter of personal taste, because that's why I love it. I love what I hear. I think he loved what he heard. He wasn't the only one, uh, of course, but there were plenty at that time who were, they were hearing it. It was underground music in a way, because it was being played at house parties. So maybe that was part of the appeal too. But then, like you said, too, it was uh, the other things that they were listening to. Uh, it was it was punk music, you know, um, and that's what Bob Marley describes when he talks about punky reggae party. And that's literally quite that's what it was. So uh, that's when bands like the specials, um, the selector madness, they they blended their tastes together and it it comes out as this yet a different form of ska. There's also something going on, um, and you can tell me if my assessment is right about this. There's something going on in America that prevents a kind of embracing of this in the way that England does, is that America, which is racist in a very particular American way, refused to think about pop music from white artists and pop music from black artists in the same category. There would right. be the, 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 you know, the billboard rock and, and, and the billboard pop. But if anything came from a black artist, it would be R and B. Um, right. 
This actually came up recently um, with that song Old Town Road, right? Billboard made Old Town Road R&B instead of country because it was sung by a, a, a black artist and there was a big, a big to-do about it. When we listen to music, do the categories that we put the music in come first or does the music invent the categories? Is music mm -hmm. powerful? I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I will pose the question like that. When we listen to music, when we have genres, which comes first? The way our mind organizes the music or the music itself? In America, I think it's the, the way that the music is categorized, which is why probably a lot of your listeners haven't heard of ska. Because where's the ska category? Where do you put ska on the radio? Where is the ska radio station? Where do you put it? Do you put it on a, an R&B station? Do you put it on a pop station? Um, you know, they may, people may have heard of Real Big Fish because they were able to break through and sell out into the mainstream. And that's why they're easy to categorize and put on that radio station. But then why haven't listeners heard Hepcat or Toasters? Because it's difficult to categorize. And so the categories prevent us from hearing the music for what it is. And so that's, I think, uh, you, I think a uniquely American thing. It's a, it's a commercial thing. It's because music is, um, music is not heard unless it can sell or unless there is some way to access it. So how can you access it in America? We don't have underground house parties here in you know, I mean, we do, and that's how, you know, like, you know, house music in Chicago and things like that are heard, but eventually, but you don't hear it on the radio. And so, you know, think about that. How do you access your music? Is it what an algorithm delivers to you? And how does that happen? It happens through categories. I think it's also really important for any of our younger listeners to understand that there was no internet, right? That we right. have access to all of this stuff now. There's a handful of very, very good and interesting podcasts out there. You recently did a podcast that these two guys do this uh, podcast called Horn Pub, which is very, very nice for um, being exposed to the full range of, of, of more contemporary sky. I have some philosophical issues with that, with their approach, but that's okay. Skaboom um, is a new podcast that, that, that's coming out about a book that's coming out. It's, it's, there's some really good stuff. But when I was, the Toasters were my favorite band for years. And, and, and when I would, would uh, go to Bleecker Bob's in New York, there were these things called imports, right? These, these, yeah. these international albums that would be twice as expensive that you'd find in the bins. <laughs> and all you would know about the music is the album that you would happen to come across that you would judge by its cover right. <laughs> and because it was in the ska slot. Right. And then something happens... Uh, my Sky Radio show was on college radio, which was the one area of radio that would tend to mix the races. And yes. there was this magazine called CMJ, the College Music Journal. And College Music Journal started this trend of summarizing these songs and then having these really minute genres, you know, acid pop, uh, Doghouse, right? I invented that. But, but you know, and, <laughs> and, and the DJ was supposed to know what that meant so they could play things without hearing them or, or research things to follow other things. And so the way that people found music was completely different 
until 1994 when the World Wide Web was introduced. Right. Does this mean that music is more tied in with people in the community back then than it is now? It's possible now to be completely immersed in a music genre and have no face-to-face contact with people, especially during COVID-19. But it was impossible when I was growing up to listen to ska and not meet other ska fans because you were competing for the same records and you were going to the, the same record store. Does that change the nature of music? Does, does, does the face-to-face element, the, the, the return to the sound system kind of thing, is that, can you hear that in the music? I guess that's the philosophical question. Can you hear the community in the music when it's more face-to-face? I think so. I personally do. I, I think that was always part of ska music, like we talked about, the folk music. It's music of the folk, people, participatory. I mean, think about it right now. I mean, how much are we missing live music during the pandemic? Whatever your musical choice is, if it's if it's going to an opera, if it's going to a, you know a, a massive festival, I think people are really missing that because music is experiential, and if you can't experience it, then there's something very different about it. That the the identity comes out of it. The the um, you know the I don't know. It's it becomes kind of maybe a little bit more mechanical, but, um, I think that, I think music has to be experienced and if it's not experienced or, you know, that's, I mean, listen to a song on your Walkman and try not moving, try not tapping your foot, you know? So there's something that makes us part of the music. That's just kind of inherent in whatever, It is. And that's why some music calls to us and some music doesn't. Um, There's something that is part of us that makes us part of it. One of the reasons why I chose the two songs that I did in the beginning, even though I knew that they were, we'll call them boundary songs, not quite ska, is that they were both styles that I thought would pull the listener in immediately. They were overtly emotional, overtly rhythmic, overtly music that you could imagine dancing to at a club. And I wanted to do that rather than one of the more old style muted ones because I wanted people to be pulled in. And I have to tell just another story. I feel like I'm talking too much on this episode, but but, uh, right before the pandemic started, I saw the interrupters in Winnipeg and I had had the tickets for eight, nine months, and I was super excited. And I was going to go with my daughter who hadn't quite become, you know, solidly and physically a teenager yet. And so I ended up going with my wife and we went in the balcony because since my daughter was still young, I didn't want to be on the floor. I, I, I wasn't sure how she would react to, to the, the chaos of, of, of right. having a pit, a pit and moshing and skanking and all this kind of stuff. And everyone on the floor was insane and crazy as they often are in a ska punk show um and everyone in the audience was completely subdued and didn't move and i stood up and i started to dance in my seat and they told me to sit down (laughs) and i was i was first of all i was baffled and second of all i was furious it was an incredible performance and one of the worst musical experiences in my life and to be Mm. honest for about two, three weeks, I fell into a massive depression um, mm-hmm. because 
it called into question exactly what I want this show to be about, which is, if I can't participate in the music community, can right. I listen to the music? And right. it took me a few weeks to listen to the interrupters again. I was really, I really thought that, that they had been taken from me. Mm. Is that, you know, without this becoming therapy, which is a whole other <laughs> issue, is that experience uncommon? Um, is mm -mm. that experience of of feeling ripped away from the the community? Is that just me being crazy and neurotic, or or is no. that something that that the music itself communicates? Oh, it's definitely some of the music itself communicates, and you know you could you could argue that about any music really, but it's so unique to ska that um, I think that's part. Well, like we talked about, I mean, that's the part of what's where Scott came from. It was always participatory, but, and when that's missing, then there's something changed about the music itself. So the very, my very first story, and you talked about how the Toasters were one of your very favorite bands, same here, and they still are. That was my, that's my Scott story. Everybody who's a Scott fan has one. They'll say how the music just changed them when they first heard it or whatnot. For me, it was going to a ska show, and it was the Toasters, and my brother Charlie took me, and I. this was in, I think, about 1993, and this was, you have to remember, right after the grunge era, and a lot of arena rock, and a lot of sitting in your seat, or at the very, you know, most, maybe standing up with a lighter, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and holding the flame, and that was the expression of the music then. Well, I went to the toasters and I was in the back because the crowd was massive and packed and they were moving. They were dancing, they were moshing, they were expressing themselves. And it was the best thing I had ever seen. I went, whoa, what is this? And that was it. And then I found, you know, as I'm researching the music and, and years later, that that is part of that music that even in uh, the UK, when the specials like we were talking about, when they performed on stage, members of the audience would jump up on the stage. They were, there was no separation. There was no barrier between the band and the audience. And when I, it's not just one or two people. I mean, it was a, a massive group of people up on the stage and they welcomed that for a while until things got a little rough. Um, but because they wanted there to be no barrier. Um, and so having to sit in your seat. Yeah. After, after that, you know, the knowing that this is part of ska music to have to be forced to sit in your seat during a fantastic band, like the interrupters, I mean, I would be depressed too. I want to play a snippet from, Toaster's East Side Beat from the Skaboom album, because it's the best version. Nice. And, um, and uh, I want people to listen to just this 30-second 30 snippet and imagine standing still during it, because I think <laughs> that that gets to the point. And what's, of course, interesting about East Side Beat is Rob Hingley, who's the, the lead singer, Bucket, of, of Toaster's and the Founders, founded his own uh, record um, label called Moon. And the, the first part of the song, he's just referencing all of the high school bands that are on his label. Too True is one of the examples. And, and so when you're in the community, you know that. But, but let's listen to this for 30 seconds and just imagine sitting still. Oh. 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 
Okay, now I want to shift the discussion for a second and talk about uh, around the same time that I saw the interrupters, I got to take my daughter and my wife and, and, and my daughter's friends to see the Scottalites. And mm. uh, we danced and, and it, was, it was everything. It was supposed to be actually the, the, the Scottalites came on, right? Half of them are 700 years old, right? And half of them are 30. <laughs> um, and because this is, Scottalites are what, what the, uh, the original biggest band in ska, uh, in Jamaica, starting in the 1950s, and have been playing regularly ever since. And one of the great moments of my life is skanking, which is a ska dance, with my daughter Adina, while Doreen Schaefer mm. got was was singing. Um, Doreen right. Schaefer it was the Scottalites vocalist. She's got a, a bunch of solo albums out too. So far, we've heard largely male voices. And so far with the competitiveness, um, especially there's a certain kind of maleness that comes out of punk rock, that comes out of the Jamaican gangster rude boy scene, the skinhead scene. But women are a really important part of this, right? And Doreen Schaefer Absolutely. in particular is, I mean, a saint of ska. Right. You've written two books on women in Jamaican music. What do we learn right. about the music from the women's experience of it? And what do we learn about the women's experience from the music? Hmm. Well, I mean, women, I, we don't learn as much as we should because the women were not allowed a voice. They were backup singers. Uh, you mentioned Doreen, and she was uh, one of the few who were allowed to be a soloist. Uh, but at the time, women were really uh, relegated to being backup singers or part of a, a duet, a duo. Um, and they were told what to sing. So really, we can't, we can't learn very much from them in the Jamaican era. Um, and there are few of them because women weren't allowed the choices that men were allowed. Women had, uh, you know, certain roles to play and as, you know, child bearer, child, you know, care. Uh, Hortense Ellis, I think, is one of the most amazing voices in Jamaican ska music from that era and reggae. Um, but she had nine children. She didn't have the choice of having a career and expressing herself and making music for people to celebrate and dance to. She had to raise her children. She had to pay, uh, earn a living. So that's part of why I wrote the, you know, the book that I did on them or the two books that I did on them is because I think that it makes their contributions even more valuable because you realize that it had to go through so many barriers in order to be on vinyl. Um, but in, in later eras of ska, I think, especially at the American ska music, I think what we can learn from women's voices is that women were allowed a space now. Women had space on the stage in the spotlight, um, thanks to the, you know, so many who had paved the path for them, but they, women had space and each 
woman is able to express herself in the way that she does so that we have very different images. We have some uh, American ska that the, the women are kind of, you know, more tough and a little edgy and a little badass. And then there's other women who are very sexy. And then there's women who are, um, you know, sweet and demure. And so it's a personal expression and they're allowed to have that now. I want to play just a bit of, of, of the original voices. I've got a lovely version of Doreen Schaefer doing Sugar Sugar, but you like Horton's Ellis, so which would you rather I play? Okay, so <laughs> Sugar Sugar by Doreen is very, very sweet. I love it. I, w- I wish you would. Uh, but Horton's Ellis, Woman of the Ghetto, uh, is so soulful. It's not Scott. It's more reggae but you hear the pain in her voice. Okay, so let's listen to Women of the Ghetto. Let's listen to that right now. That's really remarkable. Um, how does she do that with nine kids? I mean, how, how does how I does how, how does yeah. that? Um, there, there's another woman um, who has a profound impact uh, on all of this, who's largely invisible, and that's um, Sister Mary Ignatius, mm. uh, who runs an orphanage, right? Alpha Boy Schools. Will, will that's you right. Talk- Will you talk just a little bit about that and why that was so important? Because this this, this is an example of both the, the the invisible impact of women, but also the way that one small thing can explode mm. into you know a worldwide fifty right. year long phenomenon. What's right. what's Alpha Boy School and why is Sister Mary Ignatius so important? So Alpha Boys School was established by the Sisters of Mercy, so many women, and it was established in, in 1880 in Kingston, right in the heart of Kingston, just kind of a little bit north of the downtown. And, and it's it was, an orphanage, right? It's an orphanage? It is. It is yeah. essentially, well, I mean, it, not in the traditional sense, but it's the it, what they call the, a school for wayward boys. Um okay. Many didn't like that title. Many of the boys that went there didn't like that title. Not all of them were, you know, what they would call bad boys, but but essentially they were boys that were maybe truant from school or a little, maybe they, you know, the a parent was missing in the household. And so then, you know, they were sent there because they, of poverty and things like that. So essentially uh, they went there to get an education, but also to learn a trade so that when they did graduate, they would have a job. Uh, brick making, gardening, tailoring, woodworking, things like this. One of the trades was music because at that time you could get a job in the, you know, 40s, 30s, 40s. You could get a job in one of the orchestras, the jazz clubs playing for tourists um, and the elite. So they had a a classical program there um, that was taught by uh, a bandmaster typically from one of the military bands, the boys could get a job in the military band after as well. Sister Mary Ignatius Davies 
uh, saw the potential of the band for her boys. And so she would, she helped to grow that program. She acquired instruments. She recruited band leaders after they had graduated uh, from Alpha. She would recruit them back um, and say, you know, please uh, lead this band. And, um, you know, the boys, if they had a proclivity that she saw for music, she would put them in the band and she really helped to grow this program. She would play the boys music. She had a lot of love for music. She even played the saxophone herself. And this was during the days when uh, nuns still dressed in a traditional habit. So uh, that was quite a sight to see. She also brought in band leaders to recruit the boys so that they would, I mean, get a job in the Eric Dean's orchestras and all the big orchestras of the day. Um, so without her, uh, these musicians uh, would not have been uh, able to develop the music that they did, which was ska. So many of the musicians that are associated with kind of the creation of ska, uh, members of the Scatolites, the band that you just mentioned, uh, came from Alpha Boys School. So Don Drummond. Uh, Johnny Dizzy Moore. Uh, I could. There's a roll call of uh, musicians who went to Alpha Boys School, and it's really because of Sister Mary Ignatius Davies that she was able to develop that program, uh, because she had a deep love for her boys and a deep love for music. You know, and 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 the population of Kingston, Jamaica, in 1955 is about 340,000 people, and so the you can have a massive impact uh, in a small place like that. Jamaica was only about, I think, 1.7 million around that around that time, and mm -hmm. so the, the the influence becomes much wider and much, you know, you 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 can feel that. How long does it? Uh, okay, so so I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about the the question that I want to ask because because we we have to start winding down. Um, do you think, okay, so, 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 do you think that being popular is good or bad for a music genre? I mean, obviously it's good for musicians. They make money, right? They, they, right. they can live, they can eat, they can explore. The more they have, the, the, the more freedom they have. But as, 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 as someone who is really deeply immersed and in love with a genre and a genre that has for a very long period of time fought with pop music. We haven't talked about Millie Smalls and my girl lollipop um, uh, or my boy lollipop. The, my girl mm -hmm. is, 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 is the bad manners. The version. bad manners. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, um, we haven't talked about the, the, the couple of hits along the way, but, Ska has always fought with popular music um, in Jamaica, in England, in the United States, around the world. There are tons of compilations and 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 uh, bands from Mexico and France and, and Scandinavia. Um, right. Is is popular music good or bad for a genre? Well, I guess it it depends on in in you know why it's popular if it's popular because it's just you know on on the radio on the pop station it's going to it's going to go away as fast as it came but if it's popular in 
and the music has a depth to it and it's um you know there's something about it that's going to last i mean look at it heck you know led zeppelin was popular it's it's good music it's still popular um so there's it depends on what you mean by popular um but uh and and that's why the scatolites lasted i think because they were popular and they still are um you know among a certain group popular not in the way of like mass numbers but the depth the depth of that popularity um and is it is it i think it is uh it's only bad if it's not if it there's something about it that's not going to last so i and i what is it that makes it last and i think that it is uh the the talent and the quality, you know, those things are not going to go away. Um, that's why we still listen to the toasters because those are good, solid, trained, skilled musicians. Um, yes, they're playing something that is, uh, you know, that was popular at the time. They still are. And that's because of the quality of the musicianship. Um, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to call out names about those who have uh, gone away, but, uh, but that's why I think things are uh, trendy is because maybe it's uh, popular at the time and it sounds kind of catchy, but if there's no substance behind it, which in the case of ska comes down to musicianship, then it's going to, then it's going to go away very quickly. Um, and, but the bands and, that were coming out that were coming out of Jamaica, I mean, those were really skilled musicians, and those bands are still listened to today. And that's really important. And then I have one more question. I lie. I always lie. I always say I'm going to ask the question, and then I come up with another <laughs> one. But um, but but that's really important to tie in the last parts of our conversation because when ska migrated to England in particular, but also in the 1990s in in the United States. It followed the punk rock method of you learn to play an instrument while you're le- while you're in the band, right? <laughs> right. Lots of right. people are playing things that yeah. are, you know, it's the it's their 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 they're learning to play the bass while they're learning to play the bass line. But the right. Alpha Boys school made it so that all of the young people in Jamaica who were who were inventing this genre were already incredibly good musicians. Yes. And that changes the music too, right? It changes the level of experimentation. The experimentation goes in a different way. But I think that's part of what you're talking about. So one of the ways to understand the difference between, we'll call it uh, what some people call trad, traditional ska, the, 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 the sort of the lineage where you can really hear the connection between Jamaica and, and, and whatever people are playing now, there is a musicianship and a quality and a connection to jazz and improvisation that comes from basic skills, whereas the ska punk stuff, which can be really wonderful, um, is much more do-it-yourself. Right. Well, and if you think about it too, and that's what, why those musicians in Jamaica who were trained and skilled were able to really play anything. So it's not like when ska stopped being popular that those musicians went away and had no job. No, they played rock steady. They played reggae. They could change instruments. They could move to England and play with a, 
a two-tone band there. So they still had abilities that could change with the music as the, the trends changed. So uh, without that, then, uh, you know, if you learn to play your bass on, st on stage, you're not going to be able to play maybe more sophisticated bass lines of the next uh, genre that becomes popular. And you used the word that I wanted to ask you about just now. So for the last question, yeah. um, what do you think makes music sophisticated? And is what makes ska sophisticated an example of that or a separate category? When we talk about sophisticated music, as opposed to good music, which is a whole other conversation, what makes music sophisticated? And does ska just fit into that? Is that a universal claim? Or is it particular to, to what you are interested in? Ska can be very unsophisticated. <laughs> um, and I think that comes from the lack of uh, musicianship, personally. Um, what makes ska sophisticated, I think, is uh, a deep knowledge of the instrument and the, um, the theories, the techniques of music, uh, to be able to know, you know, that this particular point in the music, maybe a minor scale would be better and then go back to the major scale because you want people to feel a little discord and then resolution so that they feel that emotion of, ah, uh, there's hope, things will get better. You know, they'll feel that transition in the music. If you don't have a sophisticated knowledge of music, you're not going to have the ability to do that and to sense the feeling of your audience and to give them and deliver what you want. You're playing the music more for yourself and maybe just uh, doing what you have the ability to do. Um, so it really limits you. And so when you hear a piece of music, whether it's ska or anything else, and there is what I'm calling that level of sophistication, it is, it is something that makes it not only just good music, yeah, but it's also something that makes you appreciate the musicians and the people behind it so that you are connecting not just with the music, but you're also connecting with the musician so that you are, I think, maybe receiving their skill and you're, you're being a, a receiver of what they're putting out and their, um, their personal output. Um, and with just good music that's trendy, that doesn't happen as much. So I think music, when it's sophisticated, that there is a communion going on between the producer and the receiver. I think that that is a really good way to walk away from the conversation because, of course, it's a universal claim rather than just about ska. I hope... Um, and I actually didn't ask you this in advance, so if uh, you say no, we will edit it out. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I, I hope you're willing to send me so I can put on our webpage uh, five or ten songs that, that, that you love, that people should listen to. I know yes. you sent me some examples of, of jazz-influenced you know, jazz or anything, but, but I would like – and I'll do the same for my own list. I would just like – 
10 of Heather's favorite ska songs that you think people will groove to and 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 uh, and listen to more is are will you do that for us? I would love to do that. Nothing will please me more and I'm I'm going to put it together with your audience in mind specifically so that we can have a musical communion. That would be wonderful. Heather, this has been just such a treat and such a great way for me to end a fairly difficult period. Uh, so <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Why. Thank you, Jack. It's been an honor. You have been listening to Heather Augustine and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking to Heather Augustine about ska and Jamaican music. And I I guess I'll start out by talking about the fact that I'm a little nervous about this episode. Um, ska is tremendously important to me, uh, but I also know that it's very hard to talk about music on the radio. And uh, I want it to be accessible and interesting and compelling, and I want people to maybe be motivated to listen to more. But at the same time, philosophy is very important to me, and this is a philosophy radio show. So what I don't want is for this to have been a show about me talking about my favorite music with no philosophical content, right? So I wanted to find the balance in this episode, and I honestly have no idea if I made that balance uh, or not. And you as the listeners will judge that, and I hope you will drop me a line and tell me if it's true. Ultimately, though, what I want all of us to think about, and one of the reasons why I really liked having Heather on the show, is there's something very special, very unique about music, in that it is purely experiential, as she said, we participate in it, but it's also often identity forming. It carries history, it carries meaning, but it also carries a future and desires and passions. And even if you end up not liking ska, even if you never listen to another ska song again, as long as you live, I'd love it if you saw that patterns in the music that was important to you. I'd love it if you were able to use this episode to look at the relationship with the music that you love and ask, what is it that it gave you that helped you be you? What is it that the music brings to your life, other than distraction, other than entertainment, that helps make your experience on this world more human, more whole, more full? For me, that has always been a connection with other people and other ideas and other stories. And the rhythm, the emotion, the connection with ska has always morphed that. 
with the brute musical experience that, of course, as the child of a musician I grew up with. So listen to ska, look at your own life. I hope you enjoyed this episode, but take these questions and apply them to whatever music is important to you, because this isn't about which music is better. It's about how and why music speaks to us and how and why we can speak back. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>